Shalom Aleichem one and all, and welcome to this series of Shurim on the Book of Maccabees. Now I think it's fair to say that in elementary school, they don't teach us the full story of Hanukkah. Any Jewish school child can tell you the story of how the nasty Greeks wouldn't let us keep the Torah, so the heroic Maccabees rose up and fought against them. Then they found a pure jug of oil that lasted uh, for eight days instead of only being enough oil for one day, and that's the end of the story. Is it? No way! The story of the Maccabean revolt against the Greek Empire is arguably one of the most incredible chapters of Jewish history, where a small band of just a few thousand Jewish warriors engaged one of the greatest empires in world history in a 26-year war for freedom and came out victorious. It's an incredibly powerful tale, and one that sadly many often learn only on a superficial level, not realizing how it fits against the backdrop of world history or realizing the true significance of the war. So let's get straight into it. We'll be learning, we'll be learning the Hanukkah story like you never learned it before. We'll be learning how Yehuda HaMaccabee, leader of the revolt, slays the Greek generals Apollonius and Nicanor, how Yonatan, Yehuda's brother, gets ambushed in the city of Acre, how the miracle of the oil fits into it all, and how five brothers are able to lead their people through an entire generation of battle and warfare, and not only succeed in restoring Jewish sovereignty over Judea, but adding several new holidays to the Hebrew calendar in the process. I'll be using a copy of the text, which can be found on the online Jewish library Safaria, for anyone interested, under Second Temple, Book of Maccabees 1. Although the English is based on a Christian translation and therefore is not 100% accurate. If you want to read through the text yourself, it's good enough to use, but if you want a more reliable translation, I recommend that you manually translate the Hebrew for yourself as you go. As for me, whenever I've quoted a, a verse in the text, I've tried to translate it manually. I'll be using Josephus, the, the other chief source from whom we know the details of the Maccabean revolt. Flavius Josephus, or Yosef ben Matityahu, worked for the Roman Emperor, Emperor Vespasian in chronicling the details of the Roman Jewish war, which culminated in the destruction of the Second Basin Mingdash. But he also wrote a 20-volume complete history of the Jews from creation up until the start of the revolt against Rome, which he called the Antiquities of the Jews, or more simply, Antiquities. This complete chronicle of Jewish history contains details of the entire revolt and fills in countless details not included in the books of Maccabees and is an indispensable resource to anyone wanting to learn about this period of Jewish history. I'll also be including a lot of material I learned from my teacher, Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen, an expert on the Maccabean Revolt, and my inspiration for this entire project, as well as material from a book entitled A Crash Course in Jewish History by Rabbi Ken Spiro of Yeshivat Eshatora, a book which taught me so much about Jewish history and one I highly, highly recommend reading. I hope you're excited to begin, because I know I am. Just before we go any further, a brief disclaimer. When preparing this series of Shirin, I've tried to ensure all the information is as accurate as possible, but there's still a chance that throughout this, I may quote a piece of information inaccurately. If anyone picks up on something I've gotten wrong, please get in touch and I will endeavor to include the corrections in the next episode. So before we begin learning the book of Maccabees itself, there's a few things we need to clarify. First of all, there is a difference of opinion between Jewish and Christian scholars as to when the revolt actually took place. 
Christian scholars say it began in the year 3596 after the creation of Adam Harishon, which for them, or anyone else who insists on using the Christian dating system, comes out as 164 BCE. Jewish scholars, on the other hand, hold it began hold it began nearly 30 years later in the year 3622, which is 138 BCE. Rabbi Spiro, the author of A Crash Course in Jewish History, he also explains, by the way, that this is the reason why there seems to be a 164-year gap in Jewish history. It's down to the discrepancy between Christian and Jewish dating. For example, Christians dated the first base of Mikdash as having been destroyed in 586 BCE, while the Jewish dating system, Sefer Seder HaOlam, dates it to 422 BCE. The discrepancy arose because the Christian scholars miscalculated how long the Persian Empire lasted and added in more than 100 years. Needless to say, in these recordings, I'll be using the Jewish dates, both because I'm heavily biased and also because the Jewish dating system is infinitely more accurate, which quickly becomes apparent to anyone who looks at how much the Gregorian calendar has been tampered with over the centuries. The second thing we need to clarify, if this is only the first book of Maccabees, how many books are there? And why are we learning this one in particular? The answer is that in total, there are four books of Maccabees, but the third and the fourth are part of the Christian New Testament, so we don't care about those. The second book was originally written, written in Greek and was based on an earlier work by the his, ancient historian, Jason of Cyrene. It's a useful source of information and I will be referencing it. The first book of Maccabees, however, was originally written in Hebrew as an official history of the, of the Hasmonean kingdom after the final Jewish victory over Greece, though we don't know exactly who wrote it. Also, <clears throat> sorry, also, the first book takes us through the entire revolt from beginning to end, whereas the second book stops halfway through. Therefore, in this year, we'll be focusing mainly on the first book of Maccabees. We also need to appreciate where the Maccabean revolt falls in relation to Jewish history as a whole. So the rest of this introduction will be devoted to an overview of Jewish history from Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim up until the events at the start of the book of Maccabees. After Bnei Israel leave Egypt amid vast miracles, receive the Torah from Hashem at Harasina, make a golden calf and wander around the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years, we finally enter Eretz Israel under the command of Moshe Rabbeinu's chief student, Yehoshua bin Nun. Once we enter the land, we remain there for a total of 850 years. A good way to remember this is from a pasuk in Ve'ezchanan, which we learn at Shach Reis on The word, Unoshantem, from Unoshantem Ba'aretz, and you will have dwelt long in the land, has a gematria of 852. If we had remained in the land for 852 years, our sins would have caused, us, caused our resulting exile to become permanent. But Hashem in his mercy exiled us two years early, so that our absence from the land would only remain temporary. The first 400 or so years of these 850 are known as the era of the Shoftim, the judges, and are marked by repeated cycles of a small portion of B'nai Israel succumbing to idolatry, the nation being, uh, the nation falling into their enemy's hands, crying out to Hashem and being miraculously saved through a Shofet. Then there would be peace in the land for as long as the Shofet lived, but when he or she died, the cycle would begin again. Key events in this time include Devorah Hanaviyah's miraculous victory against the Canaanite general Sisera, 
Gizon ben Yoash taking his students, soldiers, sorry, down to the water to test who were worthy enough to battle Midian. The story of Migilat Rut, where the legacy of a widow named Naomi is perpetuated through the righteous Boaz, who the Gemara in Bahabatra identifies as the Shavet Ibtsan. And Shimshon ben Manoach collapsing a building on himself and thousands of Pelishtim, killing them and himself in the process. After all this, the people request that the final Shafet, Shmuel ben Chana, establish for them a monarchy. And this is the system of government that remains in place until the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. Among the first Hebrew kings were David ben Yishai, who conquered Rishalayim from the Yavosim, and his son Shlomo, who built the first base of Mikdash there in the year 2928 from creation, 480 years exactly after B'nai Israel left Egypt. The times when David and Shlomo reigned were a period of unique peace and prosperity for our people. But after Shlomo's death, the kingdom split in two, with the kingdom of Israel in the north, ruled by a king from Shevet Ephraim, and the kingdom of Yehuda in the south, ruled by a descendant of David Amelech from Shevet Yehuda. The northern kingdom quickly succumbed to idolatry, and its inhabitants were exiled by the Assyrians in the year 3205. The southern kingdom was not so steeped in idolatry, but eventually it too succumbed, and the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, Yemach burned the first base of Migdash and exiled the inhabitants to Babel in the year 3338 from creation. This commenced the 70-year exile in Babylon, during which Eretz Israel was initially under Babylon's rule. But after their last king, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson Belshazzar, is killed by, invasion, by, is killed by invading Persians and Medes, Eretz Israel falls to the Persian Empire. Sefer Ezra tells us how the Persian king Cyrus the Great permits the exiled, the exiled citizens of the southern kingdom, or Jews, Yehudim, as they have now been called. He permits them to return to their land and rebuild their temple. Unfortunately, only a small minority take up the call, and the majority of the nation prefer to stay behind in Babel. Eventually, Cyrus cancels his decree, claiming that anyone who has crossed the Euphrates has crossed, anyone who has not yet crossed shall not cross, thereby forbidding any Jew who had not made Aliyah from doing so. This is very bad news for the Jews who didn't make Aliyah, for while they are stranded in Chutzla Aretz, a Persian minister by the name of Haman ben Hamdata is cozying up to the new king of Persia, Achashverosh, and manages to convince him to pass a decree for the annihilation of all Jews throughout the empire on a single day. Fortunately, through the intervention of Mordechai and Esther, and a series of hidden miracles manifesting as natural events, the decree was thwarted and Haman's plot rebounded on his own head. As I'm sure you know, we celebrate this salvation as the holiday of Purim. Esther's son, Darius II, permits the rebuilding of the temple, and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews are able to build and rededicate the second base of Mikdash. During this time, prophecy disappears from among our people, and the Anshek Nesses Akadola, the man of the Great Assembly, decide which books should or should not be included as part of Tanakh for future generations. This is why the Book of Maccabees is not part of Tanakh, because it was written some 250 years after this. What's, what's important to realize is that during this time, Eretz Israel was not under Jewish control. It was still part of the Persian Empire. Rabbi Ken Spira writes in another book of his, World Perfect, 
So the Persians were not interested in creating a melting pot empire, you might say. They adopted a policy of multicultural tolerance, where, where all peoples under their control, provided they accepted Persian rule, they were free to practice their beliefs to their heart's content. And this suited the Jewish returnees very well. But when the Greek empire rose to power 40 years later, their policy towards the Jews would be vastly different. Under Alexander the Great, who defeated the Persian armies in the space of a few short years, the Greek empire rapidly expands until it covers the entire known world. As part of his military campaign, Alexander takes a detour south into the Levant and is planning to destroy the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But he doesn't. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, 69a, tells us why. As Alexander approaches the city gates, Shimon HaTzadik, the Kohen Gadol of his generation, and the last surviving member of the Anshir Knesset Zagadola goes out to meet Alexander, dressed in the garments, in the garments of the Kohen Gadol. And Alexander famously gets off his horse and bows to him, claiming that he saw this man in a dream, promising, promising him victory over the Persian armies. This encounter happens, by the way, in the year 3448, exactly a thousand years after the giving of the Torah, and around the time prophecy disappeared. It's interesting to note that the spread of Greek culture coincided with the cessation of Nevoah. The reasons behind this are beyond the scope of this year, but if any listeners are interested in learning more, I'm leaving, leaving a link to a related year at the bottom of the transcript, the ages of mythology and philosophy. Now, because of this positive interaction between Shimon Atadik and Alexander, the latter spurs Yerushalayim and Judea is peacefully absorbed into the Greek Empire. Now, whenever the Greeks came to settle their newly conquered lands, they brought their culture with them, aiming to absorb all peoples now under their control into their new enlightened Greek culture, which they believed would become the universal culture for all mankind. Most of the newly conquered peoples willingly allowed themselves to be Hellenized into this new Greek culture. The one exception to this rule were, you guessed it, the Jews. While the Jews appreciate the benefits of Greek culture, including the Greek language, arts, music, and emphasis on education and, in, and intellectual pursuits, they insist on remaining loyal to the Torah. At first, the Greeks accept this, and the Jews flourish for 165 years as a distinct entity in the Hellenistic world, a truly amazing and unique phenomenon. But as time wears on, the deep ideological differences between the Greeks and the Jews begin to surface, and it would not be long before the Greeks recognize the threat the Jews represent to their worldview and take steps to neutralize this threat. And we have to ask, what happens to this vast empire when Alexander the Great dies? This brings us up to the start of the first book of Maccabees, and we'll begin chapter one in the next year.